You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. This is the 400th episode special, and I'm here with Steve Cohen, podcast producer extraordinaire. Hi, James. How are you? Yeah, time flies when you're having fun. Hopefully... We'll be around for the next hundred, the five hundred episodes. We'll have a big party, so save the date when you when you realize we're getting close to five hundred. And uh, Steve, I can't believe it's been a whole yeah, year. Yeah, it's actually. been amazing. It's been really, really terrific. Thousand percent. You want to be in an environment where people have a mission, where they really, really want to do well. They're sincere about it. And so far, so good. What would you say are highlights from the next hundred episodes? When we do the five hundredth episode. What are we going to look back and say? Episode 343, Tony Rock, Chris Rock's brother. I love this guy's comedy. He's not as famous, obviously, as, as Chris Rock. Because um, Chris Rock, I think, hit national... Um, 
Uh, there's a lot of reasons why Chris Rock yeah. hit it big, and and Tony talks about it actually. There was it seemed like there was no competition between them. They they all sort of grew up together. They had a, a strong family. They grew up in a bad area, but they they it's like they all became comedians. Their younger brother Jordan Rock is a a good comedian too, and their cousin Sherrod Small, who's been on the podcast, is great. So actually, I'll throw in so, um episode three fifty episode three forty three is Tony Rock. Episode three fifty one is Sherrod Small. I just want to give two pe- give out two pieces of advice that, that that they each gave me, but I would encourage everyone listening to the clips and the episodes because they're both funny and interesting. And yet, I mean, everybody's an example of how important it is. I don't know. There's a lot of things I've learned and added to my life by listening and really paying attention to each of these people. Um, so I'll let you listen to them to, to, to see some of the things. But Tony Rock told me, when you're writing comedy put down in big bullet points like four or five of the main things that have happened in your life and then put bullet points four or five bullet points underneath each one of those things and then try to find the punchlines in there and that was a great technique for writing and i've been thinking about it ever since like he said to me specifically i can't believe you threw out all of your belongings and had nothing and lived in Airbnbs for three years and you've never told a joke about it. Like, what is wrong with you? So I've been doing his technique and working on it and crafting it. And, and Why don't you think you did? You know, I think, I think I, you were reluctant to use your biography in your comedy. Yeah, for a while. But I used some of my biography in, in my comedy. I don't know why. I, feel, I think I'm, I'm coming to grips with it more. Like, And it's made my comedy a lot better better as as you hopefully yeah, yeah, see. Yeah, much better. And and as opposed to just getting up there and telling jokes like every other comedian, I have like these decades of experience and like weird things that have happened to me. Why don't I tell more jokes about it? So now I'm starting to and I just had this conversation about Tony Rock last night when I was talking to I had dinner with a uh, uh, six or seven time guest on the podcast Tucker Max and he was we were talking about Tony Rock's advice and you know Tucker was giving me some suggestions as well about how to take this minimalism and airbnb stuff but it was good good writing advice by by tony but my jokes i like to say something of course laughter but i also like thought i like oh interesting i like never heard that before i like hmm he has something i like all of that in inside the laughter just not just getting laughter is nothing that's that's not even okay that's so pay off to just get a laugh so so watching you do stand up i would say um, my own my own analysis might might not mean anything. You have the the concept, uh, uh, which is usually like a funny premise, and you'll and you, and there'll be a little bit of laughter. Right. But then you'll act it out in various ways. You'll kind of like yeah. hit it hit it from different angles, acting it out. Like right. like Barack Obama, you'll have like the girlfriends he dated that he would yeah, yeah, yeah. Say, said he was going to be president. Yeah. He's not going to yeah. be president. And then marijuana, like, now right. you president. Right. And like, so you'll act it out, like, in, in different ways, hitting different yeah. angles of the thought of, like, who's this, like, 20-year-old, uh, you know, guy saying he's going to be president. Right, because you got, that's a, that's a realistic aspect of it. If you're a black guy living in the south side of Chicago and you tell your friends, you know, I want to go into politics, I think I could be president one day. In the hood, in the south side of Chicago, on the south side of Chicago, that'd be funny. You're gonna, you're gonna pass these actual people, these girls that are like you out of your mind. You can't be no president because they're living in what they see in front of them. Right. To be president, to be to be successful, and be from the inner city, your vision has to be beyond what you see in front of you. Because that's why a lot of people get stuck in the hood because they can't see past where they are. 
where they are. And to be a young black guy named Barack Obama and tell your friends, hey, I'm going to be president of the United States, that's, I think that's hilarious. Right, so the premise was funny, which, right. is, which is really interesting because a lot of times people say, oh, premise and punchline, the premise doesn't have to be funny. Right. But I think all your premise is you really focus no, yeah, on making them as funny as possible. No, premise has to be funny because it has to get, kickstart the laughter. Right, it gets them like, oh, let's see where he takes this. Yeah. Okay, now I'm in. Like, that, that's funny. That, you have my attention with that. Now, where do you go with it? So I acted out to give it a little physicality so they can follow it. But there's also, then I put the, you know, the payoff in that he actually became president. And now he's, there's these girls that are like, wow, he did it. Like, I can't believe he did that. And they got his boys from back in the hood. Like, wow, he actually, and they're still smoking weed on the corner. Like, he did it. I can't believe it. So it's the progression of the joke in how it, uh, how it, uh, how it follows the progression of Barack Obama. And, and, and I think the act out, like you just doing it right then, like how right. you, you you did it in a minor way just then, right. but like you taking on the girl's persona, you taking on the, you know, pot, you know the the, the guy's uh, uh, persona and you exaggerating it a little right. bit and dancing with it. Like, it's Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor taught me that. Richard Pryor can make this, Richard Pryor can stand on stage, one person on stage and can make it look like it's 10 people on stage because he populates he turns into the mother he turns into the grandmother he turns into the son he turns into the preacher he turns into the wino he turns into the cop he turns so it's like oh this is a story it's a play it's a one-man play so richard pryor taught everybody that everybody that does it richard pryor taught us that and then sharad which is episode 351 he gave the advice he he, he, this was actually outside the podcast. He gave a lot of great advice in the podcast. But one time I ran into Sherrod in the street and I had just done the live podcast with Ryan Holiday and we yeah. had a full house. But then we were taking a five minute break and going straight into a comedy show. And I was trying to think like, my podcast persona is obviously different than a comedy persona. You know, whether that's good or bad, I don't know. But I ran into Sherrod and I said, just right outside on a, on a bench in the middle of this Broadway, <laughs> um, I said to him, how do I go from, you know, everyone's looking at me as this podcaster and, and they're not used to seeing me doing stand-up comedy, which is like a different voice and a different, even though if, even if I'm telling stories that they know, I'm telling it in a more punchline kind of way. And he he gave really good advice, which is always call out like you can't hide from the audience always just call out what the audience is thinking and so so for instance he said uh just start off and say long time no see <laughs> and everybody laughed right, just like that right. so you shine a light on it rather than avoid it right yeah. and it's so obvious like in yeah. retrospect but it was true and he and, and then i watched his act that night um because he was on the lineup and um i saw how he did it like if he said a joke that the audience didn't laugh at, he would call out like, you know, what's up with you guys? That I know that was funny. And then people would laugh. Like if you always, anyway, it was interesting. So that's also good writing advice. 20 years, you've certainly had this huge arc of learning where yeah. sometimes you would be on a sharp learning curve. Sometimes you'd be probably disappointed in yourself and you'd have to figure things out. Like, I'm just curious each step of the way, what you learned, how you re realized you needed to learn it, what you failed at. And then ultimately you branched out to so many different things, like you said, to pay the bills. Yeah. And I'm just curious about the whole part. So like when you first started, what, what was going wrong? What kept you going? 
I mean, I just was hungry from the beginning. I mean, I remember Greg Giraldo used to always say to me in tone because he used to always see us so excited at the clubs just because we got a spot. Like, that was a big thing for us. And he was like, man, I hope y'all never lose that enthusiasm because it's fucking, it's it, just to see somebody that excited to just do these spots. He was like, it re-energized him in comedy too. It's like, it's addictive. And we were just always happy and ready to go. And then when you started, you feel like, why are we starting at just at the Bringer shows? We know all these guys. We know. No. Why, why aren't we just like right on the stage? We wanted to start from the bottom. Uh-huh. We wanted to start from the bottom of the bottom. We wanted to know every aspect of this business. And we wanted to, you know, just grow our own voice. You got to do a lot of different rooms to do that. Yeah. I'm going to reel back a couple episodes. Episode 348, Jocko Willink was his second time on. He's coming on again. Um, he, he came on the second time for uh, The Way of the Warrior. But what's so important with Jocko to me is Jocko and I are like, you couldn't find two, it seems like you couldn't find two <laughs> more different people. And I always point that out to him. And he's like, oh, you'd be surprised. And he's always right. Like one thing he really believes in, and it's a theme throughout his career and his writing and the message he delivers is that take ownership of everything. And I strongly believe that too. If if you're if you blame others, if you're angry at others for not doing what you want them to do, if you are dependent on others to achieve the success you want. You're not taking full ownership. You're not for Jocko. It's called owner taking ownership. For me, it's called choosing yourself. And they're the, it turns out they're the same thing. And it's it's such an important theme. And it really turned out our disciplines were were very similar. Uh, not in terms of when we wake up in the morning, but huh. just in terms of like that 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 you know taking ownership of things, not blaming others. You know, you're you're the only one who's who's truly uh, you have to rely on for your own success so uh, always a great podcast with Chaco uh and so much I learn each time makes my makes my life better every time he's on um and even though you you told him maybe don't call the book dichotomy of leadership he did is calling it he was kind of like sorry James I'm taking extreme ownership of this and I'm calling it right, what I want to call it which was funny when he emailed yeah, us uh, later yeah. like we gave him this advice like oh you know and I'm always free with my advice yeah, as you know like, yeah. in 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 all of these podcasts I'm always giving people ideas exactly, of what they yeah. should do like like when we had Amy Morin on I was giving her yeah. like 50 ideas of yeah. what, what to do and, and but that's the case with almost everybody we have on and um uh, so I we gave the advice like or I gave the advice. Uh, oh, that's a horrible title. And he's like, he sent us an email like, "Sorry, I'm doing it." And I bet you, you know what? I bet you it'll be a number one oh, yeah, definitely, bestseller. Definitely. Like I've I've read the book now. It's great. And he's I can't wait to. When's he coming back on? He's coming. Uh, I want to say September 26th. Or he's in New York, uh, September 24th to 27th. So soon. All right. And you know, so go, going into a couple thoughts here I, I got asked by a kid on, on my kids podcast the other day how do you, uncle jake because the, the podcast is called ask uncle jake warrior kid ask ask uncle jake kid says how do you know when you're doing the right thing how do you always do it and and i talked about what you talked about earlier which is you know people have codes and companies have codes right businesses have codes the mil every branch of the military has a code 
teams, when you play at a sports team, they'll have a code that they've put together. The Ten Commandments is a code that people followed and lived by. There's all these, and that that's what keeps people, you know, what you used earlier is like, you know, you don't want to talk about religion, but, you know, we had some kind of level of codes for us as human beings, yeah. and now they're kind of getting lost. Well, if you have a code, if you write your own code, which I especially like, and that's what the book really encourages kids to do is write your own code. And you can use this as a basis, but you write your own code and say, this is what I'm going to live by. This is what I'm going to live by. And if you have something like that that you've written down that you hold yourself to that standard, it's going to make it easier for you to hold yourself to that standard as opposed to just having some some unconnected thoughts in your head about what you might think might be right or might be wrong. When you actually write stuff down and you say, this is me, that has power. It's interesting because, and again, it's like you referred to earlier when 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 you were referring to veterans coming back, there's no, not only is there no... Um, you know, uh, America considers itself a religious country, but really it's not. It's really a very secular country. And, and you know, people focus from nine to five on their job. And then, you know, maybe they drink a little at night and then, you know, watch TV, go to sleep and then repeat. And, um, uh, and then there's the other extreme, which you've dealt with, which is fundamentalist, you know, religions that, who knows what they're about? They're not really about religion. They're often a, a, more about money than a country like America, but in a weird way, in a twisted way. Yep. But then you look at the countries that rejected religion completely. So you have like Nazi Germany, communist China, uh, the, the Soviet Union, where up to 100 million people were killed. The, 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 the countries were so violent and authoritarian. And so you see that there is some benefit to having a real code. And what I see with with these codes, like like your book and, and many other books that I've looked at, uh, there's almost this, what I'll call solo theism that's developing, which is like you say, find your own code. It doesn't have to be the same as here. Like, you know, not that you would disagree with this, but for instance, you don't talk, like for many people, um, integrity might be the first thing in their code. I'm not saying you're not for integrity, it's probably baked into these rules it's, mm -hmm. itself. But but kind of deciding what's important to you, so you build that inner confidence. Like, oh, this person just uh, uh, attacked what is in what's my core integrity, and so then you could act from that, from from a real inner core, as opposed to just like wearing a mask and trying to please, and you know, just trying to survive and make money and doing whatever it takes. Uh, I think I think this idea of developing a code is is really powerful. So how would like again you say using this as a basis, but what's the first step if if I wanted to develop my own code and it's slightly different from this? Uh, I could at first look at this and say, oh, I'll just take this one, yeah. which is good enough. Yeah, I know it's it's pretty close. Well, it's awesome to see because you know as the first the first book, he Uncle Jake shows Mark all these different codes from throughout history and they're all militaristic codes you know it's the samurai code and it's right. the it's the knights code and it's the then it's the military different militaries US militaries he shows them all those codes and says look you make your own code and i think that's i think that's what you do and i think it's i think it's very powerful and what's really cool is i get little pictures on social media that parents will send me of their kids writing their own warrior code. And, and they'll, they'll have six or seven from this, but then they'll have another one, you know, be nice to my brother and sister, or they'll add in, you know, take out the garbage on Mondays or make sure I clean up the dog poo in the yard. Like they'll add their own things that, that make it theirs, but it really does give you a solid foundation to, to stand with. 
I'll skip to episode 353, Maria Konnikova. So she's been on a bunch of times. She wrote, um, obviously, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. She wrote a book about the history of con men, which I found to be fascinating. She came on this time because, I mean, I've been, we're friends now, Maria, uh, and we've we've hung out several times outside of the podcast. In particular, we've played poker, one-on-one poker together three or four times because a year ago, she started off with zero knowledge of poker. Like she didn't even know the rules of poker. And then she um, thought to herself, a great idea for a book. And I like how people, I always am curious how people think of very simple structures that can result in very interesting, complex books. Um, And the simple structure was, I'm starting out with something very interesting. A lot of people are interested in poker. I have no knowledge. I'm going to hire the best person in the world to coach me. And I'm going to see what happens in a year of coaching. And there's so many things that this is related to. Like A, you know, how do you learn something? How do you learn poker? You know, what is poker? Is it possible for anybody to get good at poker? Was it possible for Maria to get good at poker? Like how good would she get in just a year? Um, And then it comes up against, you know, I've had on a lot of people who talked about the 10,000 hour rule. I've even had on Andrew, Professor Anders Ericsson who developed the concept of the 10,000 hour rule, which is the idea that you need 10,000 hours of deliberate practice to get to be the best in the world at something. Well, Maria, after a year of study, is one of the best in the world at poker, I would say. She's won over a quarter of a million dollars playing poker when she started from scratch a year ago. <laughs> and so we, we talked about that and we also talked about uh, some of the results that we've had when playing one-on-one together. I used to play a lot of poker myself. And so she's great. She's I, always- I was going to say, like, you talked about, like, how she came up with, like, ideas. But one thing that I found inspiring was she said, you know, how do you know if you want to do a book or something? She says, if it scares me, you know? And that I thought was really instructive, you know, not to do, if it scares you, you're likely going to grow from it and other people will too, you know? Yeah, and, you know, it's funny because that's come up a lot. And I, yeah. I've... I've written that for years that I won't hit publish on something unless I'm afraid to hit publish. But who were we podcasting the other day who said the exact same thing? Um, was it? Mm, it wasn't Yuval Harari. It wasn't him. Dan Shobel. Oh, Dan. Did Dan Shobel say that? You yeah, know, like uh, he wanted to do something that's make him uncomfortable. Is that him? I sure. feel like it was. Yeah, I think I feel like is it was Dan someone, Roth. Uh, no, yeah. James. Is it James Frey? Oh, James Frey. Oh, yeah, yeah. So exactly. James James Frey, the author of A yeah. Million Little Pieces and the new book Katarina, um, says he does, and he's one of just whatever controversy he's ever had. He's he, if you just look at the raw writing skill, he's one of the best writers on the planet. Um, and he he also said he doesn't publish something unless he's afraid of what, uh, unless he's afraid in some way, unless it makes him nervous. Uh, and so I think that was a common, that's a common theme among all these people that they challenge themselves. Really, I, you know, you could almost call this podcast, instead of the James Aldrich show, you could almost call this the comfort zone. Oh, yeah. Because all of these people very consciously stepped out of the comfort zone. Like if the comfort zone, there's nothing wrong with being in it because it's right. comfortable, but that's where everybody is because most people would correctly want to be comfortable. You have to be a masochist to not want to be comfortable all the time. Right. But every single person who's ever been on this podcast has gone outside of their comfort zone because you want to go to the place least crowded, which is also a quote that's appeared yeah. throughout this podcast. 
And that's where you find success. It's not going to be in the comfort zone where a billion other people are. It's going to be where nobody else is. And that's always outside the comfort zone. Go out on a limb. That's where the fruit is. Yeah. Yeah. And go out on a limb. That's another Steve Kahn quote. (laughs) But I do. Have you sent me that quote? (laughs) If I haven't, I will. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to put that on Twitter. right now okay terrific and see uh i'm podcast famous and twitter famous it's really great oh i'm not giving you credit on, on twitter. <laughs> i i use it to find a focus group to see uh which quotes get the the most likes um and you know while you're, you're employing social media i do i did think like i did interrupt you which again um the students learning from the master about interrupting but I did think you had a very interesting conversation with Maria about the 10,000 hour rule and her kind of disputes with Anders Ericsson, you know, like she seems to, what did you, what what did you conclude from the fact that she was able to learn poker certainly in a lot less than 10,000 hours and obviously becoming pretty damn good. I mean, she beat 230 people in the world series of poker. Oh yeah. And, and by the way, that's, there's no luck to that. Like, yeah. Uh, here's here's what I the thing about poker people need to understand before before we get into that winning any one tournament there's a luck factor you have to get good hands at some point and uh, you know sometimes you get lucky sometimes you yeah. get unlucky when you when it's right yeah. down to the wire well at some point to win you have to be all in or someone's all in and you have to win that hand yeah so and that boils down to the cards in the deck but to to win a tournament. You know, any one tournament re- requires some luck, but to win any tournament requires skill. Yeah, <laughs> like you have to. You, you, a random person is not going to walk off the street, learn the rules, and beat a thousand people in a poker tournament. Like there is a skill factor in winning a poker tournament. And Maria, I've played her now many times in poker. I we've we've talked over hands. I see how her mind thinks. She is def. I I played a quite a bit of poker in my day. She's definitely a better poker player than me, and I see how her mind thinks. She analyzes like five layers deeper than me, um, and that came from from hard work. But um, so do you think her being a PhD in psychology contributes as well? Right? Yes. So I think I think in general about the ten thousand hour rule, and I've learned this. You know, trying to get skillful at comedy. Uh, and, and you know, deliberate practice, as Anders Ericsson describes it, is incredibly important. Do you need 10,000 hours? I'm not even so sure Anders Ericsson feels you need 10,000 hours, but he, I think he feels you need around there. Like his yeah. whole major study on violinists shows the guys with 10,000 hours are better than the guys with 8,000 hours are better than the people with 6,000 hours. But I do, I am a firm believer you can borrow your 10,000 hours or you can borrow some of your hours from other areas of your life. So for instance, let's take stand-up comedy as an example. I've done put in, you know, thousands of hours as a public speaker. So I'm able to borrow from my skill set as a public speaker when I go on the stage. I've definitely spent 20,000 hours as a writer, which means I've spent 20,000 hours as a communicator. So I'm able to borrow from those hours yeah. for stand-up comedy. And I think Maria for just doing a PhD and then doing a PhD in psychology, uh, which gives you a kind of good sense of, of people and statistics and probabilities. She's able to borrow from those 10,000 hours to think very analytically on poker. And I think that's helped her quite a bit. So what helped me in poker when I was playing is that I had put in my 10,000 hours mastering games like 
chess and go and backgammon and i was able to borrow from those 10,000 hours to i knew exactly what i needed to do to 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 meta learn yeah. poker like i meta learned games so i was able to apply that meta learning to poker so i've meta learned communication so i'm able to apply that not instantly i still have to put in still have to go on stage and do stand up comedy i can't i wasn't able to do it instantly but i was able to borrow from sure. the other areas of communication and apply the general meta learning techniques of each area of communication to yet another form of communication. So I think that's important. And we and we all, by the way, all of us have spent 10,000 hours doing something. And when you do something new that you love, you can borrow from something else that you've loved that you've put time in and, and skip a lot of those hours. Now, the reason why um, Malcolm Gladwell and Anders Ericsson talk about the Beatles is they didn't have hours, or even Anders Ericsson's study of violinists, they didn't have hours doing anything else, right? Like yeah. the Beatles started when they were 15 years old. So it's not like sure. they had 10,000 hours to borrow from anywhere else. Um, they had to just put in the raw 10,000 hours of becoming the Beatles. But you know, people who learn things later in life um, you know, have opportunities to borrow those 10,000 hours and become good at many things that they're potentially interested in. Like, like if Jim Cramer were to write about sports, he's put in his 50,000 yeah. hours writing about finance, he'll be able to write about sports. Sure. I feel like all of your interests have combined into what we're going to talk about on this podcast, which was your next book that you were planning was going to be how you started off with essentially zero skills at poker and you were going to spend a year studying with the best poker player in the world and seeing how far it could take you to, yep. in, in terms of learning. And then it's taken you so far <laughs> that you've been making a ton of money, you know, compared to the average salary. You've been making a ton of money playing poker now, just a year or so later. And you've even postponed the book. Yeah, yeah. No one could have predicted that this was going to happen. I could have predicted it. Oh, I, thank you, I knew, you, I knew you were there. Well, we played, so I played poker quite a bit. 20 years ago, it was 1998, yeah. 1999. I played at you know all the clubs in New York. And we played once, we played a couple of times and you were already like just dominating. And so <laughs> I could see this was, you were, you were going a long way. Not that I could really judge these things, but what was like the last tournament you played in? Um, so the last tournament I played in, I just got back from Monte Carlo um, for the European Poker Tour. Sounds very exciting for for a writer. Yeah, yeah. It was actually my one-year anniversary playing poker. So my first ever big tournament was Monte Carlo last year. Um, so this was my one year on the on the poker circuit. Um, it was very exciting for a writer. Um, I never would have done anything like that otherwise. I mean, okay, so I, I didn't end up doing that well, but I played a tournament that has a $25,000 buy-in, which is more than my first salary in media when I started out in New York, which is just absolutely insane. And what was the last tournament you made money in? Um, well, so I, I did cash in, in one tournament in Monte Carlo for like $5,000, a little more, which which was fine. But when you, when you play a bunch and they're kind of big tournaments, I'm still negative for the trip. That was not a very good trip. The trip before was to Macau, um, and I came in second um, in one of the tournaments I played, and that was almost sixty thousand dollars. So that was a good trip. Sixty thousand dollars. So yeah. altogether, how? What are your poker winnings? Um, so over the last year, um, I have made a little over two hundred thousand dollars. Two hundred thousand dollars. And and when you started, did you 
What did you know about poker when you first started? Nothing. Zero. zero. Literally like, zero. Did you know the Did you know the order of the hands? No. I didn't know how many cards were in a deck. Why did you decide, okay, I'm going to pick poker and um, do a book on this, on learning it from zero on? So I wanted to write about luck, and we've talked a little bit about this before, kind of the role luck plays in our lives. Like, What is luck? You know, How much of our lives do we control? How can you maximize what you can control? How can you learn to tell the difference between what's skill and what's chance? You know, how do, how do you actually make decisions that way? But that's... That's not a book. That's that's a huge question. That gets very existential very quickly. You know, like and, and what, what I, are your beliefs about the universe? By, by the way, there's a book I just saw recently. I think maybe it just came out about the science of luck. Cool. I I don't know where I was, but anyway, I don't think that's what your book no, became no. about at all. Um, and so I, but I wanted a way into this question. Um, and I read a lot. Um, and when I'm doing research and starting on a new project, I just read for inspiration and try to figure out, you know, is anything clicking. Um, and one of the books I, I came across um, was John von Neumann's Theory of Games, which is the foundational text of game theory. So I had zero background in game theory. I mean, I have zero background in math. The last time I'd done any sort of math was in high school. Um, so game theory was something that I'd never even considered. But someone said, you know, you might look into game theory because game theory is all about kind of decision making. Can you describe just what does the phrase game theory mean? Um, so game theory means if you actually kind of look at the world like a game where everyone has certain payoffs for certain decisions. Um, given that, what is the best way for you strategically to make a decision um, so that no one can quote unquote exploit you? Um, if you have a game theory optimal decision, that means that given all factors, the way that you are acting is the kind of best overall over the long term decision for the situation. Okay, so let, let me give you an example which someone asked me about yesterday, which I find to be very interesting. And and first off, I do think you've dealt with game theory before because a book about con men sure. is all game theory. Right, right. So the I con just man is playing a game. Yeah, yep. yeah, and the conner is playing a game. This is true. This is true. I just I, I had never I have never done it before. I'd never done it in a formal way. Like okay. I never really knew, you know, how to apply that specific framework. So, so here's a here's a classic thing yeah. in, in in business. Um, uh, you have two. Uh, somebody presents you. Some godlike figure presents you with two opportunities. Yep. One is you have a hundred percent chance to start a business. Mm -hmm. you, you, have, you, you In both cases, you could start a business. In the first case, case A, you have a hundred percent chance of building the business and selling it for a million dollars in a uh -huh. year. Hundred percent chance you'll make a million dollars in yep. a year. In the second case, you have a one percent chance of selling the business in a year for a billion dollars. Now, in a game theoretic sense, the case B is the better choice because uh, the expected value is one percent of a billion is is ten million mm -hmm. as opposed to one million. Mm -hmm. But I would argue case A is actually the one a person should take. Absolutely. And yeah. and so okay, so so I'm not wrong in thinking this way, even no. from a game theoretic point of view. I mean, you know, you have to you have to keep in mind human psychology, right? And and the fact that the ninety nine percent of the of the time when you make zero. Are you the type of person who can afford that? And for most people, that that's actually not the case. You actually would rather take the sure thing, even though it's less. Right, because once so, you have the million, then you'll have then you the next opportunity exactly, to build exactly. a business that can make a billion. Exactly. So we need to we need to take it that into account. Von Neumann would have actually agreed because so this this is what brings us to poker. He was a poker player, and he I didn't realize that game theory came out of poker. He actually invented it in Monte Carlo. Oh, um, yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, I didn't it, know that. Yeah, it was it was it was pretty cool for me to learn that. 
Um, and he said, you know, poker is a much better analog for real decision-making than chess, than Go, than any of these other games. I, I agree with that. Played, having, having played extensive, each one of those I've played for several years yep. each. So Go, chess, poker. And you became I, really good at them. Yeah, all, all three. I mean, I won't say, I, I probably played played each one the same amount of time. And so in chess, um, ranked a master. and Go, I was about one Don, if you know the ranking system there. Poker, who knows. But uh, but I played about the same amount of time mm-hmm. each. I would say p- poker is much more reflective of human decision making. Right. Um, and so that's what Von Neumann said. He said, okay, this game, it's a game of incomplete information, right? Rather than chess, where there's always an optimal solution. You can see it because there you know, everyone sees the board. And so theoretically, there's always a correct move. In poker, there's no theoretically always correct move because there's private information. There are things that I know that you don't know. There are things that you know that I don't know. There are things we know in common. Then we have to play each other as well. You know, what do I think you know? What do you think I know? And it gets into the human psychology side of it. It gets into bluffing and kind of trying to figure out how can I win even if I'm actually not in the best situation in terms of my cards. And von Neumann was like, this is life. This is actually the model for strategic decision-making I want to use. Um, And he was advising um, the national government of the United States at the time. Um, He was working on the hydrogen bomb. And he actually thought that poker, like solving poker, would help prevent nuclear war. It's Um, so interesting because he's he's probably correct. I mean, look at... Look at the 1950s. Yeah, the, the Soviet Union, which had everything going wrong, a backwards economy. Even then, um, who knows where their what their nuclear situation was like? But they had such bravado. Yeah, they, they basically were playing as if they were had a pair of aces in the hand, yeah. and uh, for all we know, they had nothing. Exactly. But but they they mastered the game of poker in this in this case because they knew against you know Kennedy, a young yeah. inexperienced Kennedy, that maybe they could they could bluff their way through. For sure, for sure. So this was this was actually when I read that I was like this is really interesting. I I want to figure out what this poker thing is because it did seem to me like it would be a really good way of learning about, you know, about decision making, about people and that it could be a rubric for life, so to speak, right? Oh, that learning you. to play could could make you much better at making decisions. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible. ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. How about we go to episode 356, this amazing guest, Steve Cohen. Uh, Steve, uh, I'm afraid, did I insult you on that podcast? I said that maybe you were on the spectrum of Asperger's. Were you insulted about that? No, I, absolutely not. I was I was really honored to be a 
part of the I don't really think you have Asperger's. Well, maybe a tiny bit. I'm wrong. <laughs> no, I do. I remember you had said something to me like I so and so thought he was weird, and I remember saying like, okay, you know, like like my dad used to say like some people swear by you, some people swear at you, you know. It's um, and you know, uh, but I I think it was a great exercise, and I was very uh, honored to be on it, and I thought just even your uh, I certainly didn't ask, you know, like I was appreciative, but I felt like uh, it definitely, I thought about it in advance. I thought like, what is my intent on coming on? Like it was more about, it was it was about to say like, hey, we're doing amazing things here. We're working really hard. We care about what we produce and. But, but what, yeah. what so, so yes, uh, like, like uh, having on the team, of course, it, you know, has been a, an incredible experience. And now it's been a year. We're celebrating a year anniversary of it with this yeah. 400th episode almost. But what I was really interested in is just, you know, you had been a, you had put in your 10,000 hours of producing yeah. media. Like you were a producer on Good Day New York. You were a producer on, what was it, CBS? CBS Early, Early Show. Early Show. Radio. You yeah. were a producer in radio. Yeah. So you've put in your 10,000 hours of basically constructing, entertaining, and informative and educational programming like good day new york is one of the is like the best morning yeah. news show in new york city now i don't know if it was when you started or not but you you, you yeah. certainly made it that way and yeah grow definitely it. definitely helped yeah um no and i yeah absolutely I, I i think that you have to use everything you can in your past to kind of move forward and and and, and i don't think we should ever restrict ourselves you know in any situation and, and it's inspiring when we have these guests on we mentioned Tyra Banks or Maria Konnikova. They didn't allow themselves to be pigeonholed by what other people felt they could be like. You know, like they didn't allow the masses to convince them or groupthink to say, "Oh, you're not able to do this." And right, know. like that's the one thing. Like, if I say, "Oh, we'll never be able to get Barack Obama on," if I were, yeah. let's just make up a name. Yeah, you, your response usually is, "No, no, we'll we'll get him." <laughs> I do feel that way. I honestly do, and um, it's not bravado. It's not. Um, I think we have an amazing program and I think we will get people and we'll hustle while we wait. And uh, I do know, you know, uh, that people come on and I feel very, very confident about pitching anybody because you're very unique at this. You do your homework. You appreciate people. You're not obsequious to people, but like you're very informed and people enjoy it. So I feel good about saying, hey, come on this program. I, I'm, I have faith that you're going to do a, a terrific job, and they're going to be appreciative. And and, and what what yeah. what I learned, and we talked about this in yeah. that episode, is and and then in another later ask, episode, the power of ask. Uh, uh, you just have this amazing ability to network with thousands and thousands of people. You have networks within networks, like you have <laughs> tiers of networks. So like. You'll know all, you, you know, the 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 potential guests. Yeah, like, yeah I was going to sure. call them celebrities, yeah. but it's not just yeah. celebrities. You'll know all the potential guests, but you also know their publicists. You know their agents. You know the book publishers. You know uh, their best friends' wives, uh, and, <laughs> and you you are networking constantly in a way that I'm just not capable of. Like I have, like I was saying the other day, Google is teaching me manners. So for instance, I'll get a, a, an email from someone and normally I just wouldn't 
respond. I'll say, okay, I sent an email, they sent an email back. But Google will kind of have these suggestions now at the bottom of a, have you oh, seen that at the bottom yeah. of an email? Oh, like, no, I, they're yeah. like, you know, Google will say, you hit this button and now you can write, uh, yes, thanks, this oh, is so that's awesome. that's interesting, that's interesting. <laughs> and so I realized, oh, Google's sort of teaching me manners and so I've been responding to a lot more people. But you always respond, you keep in touch with people, People tell me stories yeah. about you, like Steve showed up at my grandma's <laughs> funeral in North Carolina on a day when he had like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on oh. your podcast. <laughs> like you, you always take that five extra, not the extra step, the five extra steps, and that's how everybody responds to you. And there was a lot of things we talked about on that podcast and the other podcast we've we've done together. We've done three podcasts overall. This is the fourth we've done together now. Um, but in that podcast in particular. It's like you literally were speaking in quotes. <laughs> and so I think we identified P Pamela Rothenberg, yeah. who is also a producer on the show. I want to thank everybody for working with him. You know, Jay, we don't have to thank. I mean, Jay, <laughs> you know, but um, but definitely Pam, Nathan, and Savannah, and Matt, and everybody. Uh, and, and, but, but our team is they're great, so I'm overjoyed. Pamela identified yeah. like the, the 58 quotes you said in 60 minutes <laughs> that were like quotable. And then we had the idea, we're going to put together the a book, The Tao of Steve. So that's... I'm, I think I'm, I'm honored. And I think that um, I do think a lot of my friends noticed it. And I, I thought you're very, very rare. I do. I think Did you have like, anybody call you who you were surprised, oh, like um, you hadn't heard from in years and you were and like, yeah, Steve, I did I just actually. heard I did. you on the James Altucher Yeah, show. they were like, oh my God, I love James Altucher. I can't believe this is where you wound up. And I was saying, I said... Listen, let me know when you want to come down to a podcast. I'm Dwayne Reed, whatever you need, like let me know. But I think I think what's really, really nice is like you you're not as um and I'll, I'll insult you later so it makes people, you know, to kind of lever right. to kind of balance the, the sleep. But like I just think that it's rare you have enough confidence to be very generous to say, Wow, this guy I have is is special. He's great. I'm happy to have him. And 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 it's kind of like, you know, when a one of my other favorite podcasts I thought was Ken Langone who came on and remember he in his book he like and in his personal life he's very proud of the fact that he made 3,000 people millionaires at Home Depot right and, and, that, and remember I, I said to him like listen Ken like a lot of people are reluctant to praise people because they don't want you know they're afraid they might ask for more money they're afraid that they're going to detract from their own credit or whatever reasons they have or they're just selfish and he said Steve those people are sick you know, so James Altucher, you are not sick, at least well, in that way. Well, well, and Ken, Ken. So we'll skip to the episode three sixty six. Ken Langone, he was fascinating. So this is a guy who's a multi-billionaire, started Home Depot among other things, started from nothing, has given hundreds of millions of dollars to charity. I mean, every hospital in New York is NYU Langone centers, and he just gave another. Um, Hundred million for so people go to medical school here for free, which is which is great. He's really putting his money to work in ways that do immediately and directly contribute to society instead of just blanket writing a check to a, a nameless charity. Um, but he 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 was he you could see this is a guy who's been disciplined for fifty years, and and he said I'm not self like you said he's made three thousand millionaires, but it's not just that they became millionaires because he of what he said. He's not a self-made billionaire, which everyone calls him. Yeah. He had the help of all these 3,000 people and many more. Um, and he always says, you you know, or he was always saying, it's very important to have really good quality people around you. And we talked about that actually in private right before the podcast and then in the podcast. 
I think that's a, a valuable podcast to to listen to. Um, you know, and 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 he's featured in my upcoming book, uh, Think Like a Billionaire. It's very very good guy. Well, here, here's what I want to ask you, and, and I know we're going to be skipping around the book a little bit, but you talk so much, and it's such a valuable lesson about how your main successes came from investing in good people. And we'll, Absolutely. We'll, we'll, we'll get Not to- Not my main successes, all my successes. All, all your successes, which is an extreme- People don't understand how valuable a lesson that is. Like oh. one bad person could ruin a multi-billion dollar company and, and has on many occasions. But if you have a team of good people around you, billions of value could be created. Look, the human condition is spectacular. Nothing like it. As I said earlier, if there were no human beings on earth, it would be a round thing with some water and dirt and nothing else. Uh, you look at, you mentioned Sam Walton and you mentioned Pete Cunningham. What happened, here's Kmart bankrupt, went bankrupt and probably going to go out of business now. Same business that Walmart copied. The biggest corporation in the world today in volume. What was the difference? People. Home Depot. You had Rickle, Pergament, Channel, Somerville Lumber, uh, Heckinger's, Scotty's, all these regional chains all over. You mentioned um, Home Co. You mentioned oh, Home. Well, that was Pat Farris started. Pat's effectively one of the four founders. We, we say three, but but Pat came a month or two after we started, and he was so much of the creative genius we had. He was Pat is. I shouldn't say was. He's alive and kicking and doing well. He owns a hamburger joint out in Lake Tahoe now. Busy Beavers or some crazy name like that. And and we, we were four guys and, you know, we were passionate about what we did. We liked each other very much. We had fun. We all had different skills and talents. And the rest is history. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, well, let's talk about the, the, the main, I have a lot of questions about your, your people, uh, identifying skills, whether they're good or bad, and the, the, some of the near misses you've had. But with Madoff, is it, such a clear case where he obviously is, was a, a, an extraordinarily bad guy, but a lot of people still invested with him. When he was pitching you, it was almost like you had an instant reaction. Like, what was what was your gut telling you, and how did you see that? And I should mention also, you mentioned several times you're a poker player, which is, uh, involves a lot of people watching. Well, poker is as much studying people as it is studying cards. You know, uh, I would never want to play against Madoff because he was absolutely emotionless. Had to be. He's, he knows he's going down when he's talking to me. And you'd have thought he, the sky was blue skies the rest of his life. So, so what gave you, like, I couldn't tell anything one way or the other the one time I met him. What gave you kind of the, the red flag? Well, let me, let, me, let me ramble for a moment. Let me back up. If I were teaching a course in business school today and I was told by the place I could only use one book, could only have one textbook, you won't guess what it would be. It would be the Bible, the Old and New Testament of the Bible, both. What I saw in Madoff when he pitched me that he was giving me something because he didn't have enough to go around for his other people that were around him 25 and 30 years. And in my head, I instinctively asked the question, 
how would I feel if I were one of those people that was an investor with him for 30 years and he's got this incredibly outstanding opportunity. This is what he's pitching to me, this, this fabulous opportunity, but it isn't big enough to give to all of his people. I thought, you know, I'd be kind of pissed off. I'd kind of feel like, hey, that's not right. And so in the Bible, you know, what's the golden rule? Do unto others as you have others doing it. That's simple. It was nothing profound. It was nothing earth-shattering. It was nothing like I had a major breakthrough through in biotechnology or bioscience. It was a very simple, put myself in their place shoes. Let's see. We've we've probably hit more than fifteen at this point, Jay. Right? Yeah. I'll, I'll go through a couple more. First off, they're all good. I can't even. That's why we're having so much hard time. Like. I want to mention Amy Morin, who's always a friend of the podcast. She's been on four episodes, but two of those episodes were a part one and part two, episodes 371 and 372, where she interviewed me. Yeah. I I enjoyed being a guest on my own show. <laughs> she um, did her homework. She really did us a favor. She didn't have to do it. Yeah. She, she came up here and, and interviewed me, and she's so smart. She wrote, of course, uh, the best-selling book, uh, 13 things mentally strong people don't do. Uh, and so I was really appreciative that she wanted to interview me on my podcast. By the way, I'll also mention Cal Fussman, episode 378, also interviewed me about minimalism. So that's a great one to listen to. Um, I mean, it was fun for me to do. And then just all the all the podcasts have been, have been great. Um, uh, you and I did, oh, I forgot, we, we did this one too, while talking about Choose yourself. Those were bonus episodes. Uh, we have, uh, which again, it's the fifth anniversary of Choose Yourself, and um, and still, like that book, I wrote it to be evergreen. Like it's not, it wasn't topical. Uh, the philosophy still holds. Like I still, I I reread the book to remind myself of the philosophy. Terrific book. Really, really great book. You know. And then we had a fun time doing that podcast. In your writing, you'll call yourself stupid a lot. Do you think that in your head? Like, will you think, oh, I'm so stupid? Yeah, because being smart in most areas, you can't be smart in every area. So I think a big, I think my first big problem was after the first time I sold a business, I thought to myself, oh, I made a lot of money. That must mean I'm a genius because that's how society conflates money. I'm smart in everything now. And so I would just spread it all around. Like I'm, I'm great at this. I'm great at that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to invest in this. Everything I touch is going to turn to gold. And then I lost all of my money doing that. And so I had to really teach myself not to be kind of arrogant in that way, and just remind myself all the time that maybe I'm smart in like one or two areas, but stupid in almost every other area. Mm -hmm and be willing to learn all the time in every other area of, of life. And look, that's how, as just a, a typical example, that's how I invest. I only invest in a company if the CEO is smarter than me at, at, at that business. And if, the, if my co-investors, I have to have co-investors, if my co-investors are smarter and have more resources than me, because it tells me they've done more work than me and the CEO is better than me at figuring out his business. So I don't need to think after that. Like, if it's the reverse, if I think, oh, I'm smart, so I'm gonna, this is gonna be the biggest trend of the 21st century, uh, I'm gonna put all my money into it, then that's probably gonna be a failure. Hmm. And then what about people? Because you'll say sometimes that you don't like people. And then I like you. 
Thank you. I'm glad. <laughs> but uh, and then you have a interesting, and from what I've read and from what I know of you, you have an interesting relationship when it comes to humans. That you, I mean, there's been times in your life where you talk about being lonely, and you have times when you reach out to people, and then other times where, like, you'll say you're shy if you go to a party. Tell me about that. How does all of that work? <laughs> yeah. Well, let me ask you as a as a therapist, because this is the same question I've asked my therapist. <laughs> How many close friends do you think a person should or could have? Five. I think about five is right. Uh, uh, so sometimes I have less than that. Sometimes I have a little more than that, but like around five for close friends. And uh, uh, I think in general, I'm a real poor, I, I, it's hard to say I'm a poor judge of character. I think at times I've been, I've, I've either hated people too much right away or liked people too much right away. So I realized uh, you know, I wasn't as good a judge of character as I thought uh, one way or the other. And so I try really hard not to judge too fast. But like sometimes I'm just in a situation where like, oh, I hate everybody here, even though I don't know anybody there. And maybe that's just a way to keep myself safe. I don't know. And then other times I'm also really introverted in the sense that like I could be social with my friends or in a group where I know a lot of people but if I have to, if I'm, in a, if I'm in a party where, or a situation where I have to get to know a lot of people, I can't do it for more than like a half hour to an hour. And then I have to recharge. So introversion in the sense that I don't mind being around people, but I have to recharge very quickly and, and often. And then in terms of shyness, uh, I, I act. So mm. I'll just say to myself, I can go, I'm going to play somebody who can just talk to anybody. And then I'll just go off to any, anybody and talk to them. And that's how I get it. But I'm just naturally shy, though, outside of that. Right. Okay. Huh. And I, I think people would be surprised by that, right? Because you're James Elcher on the your podcast, and you put your story out there for millions of people. How can you not want to talk to people? Well, and, but uh, uh, this is where stand-up comedy or public speaking helps, is that you get used to right. talking to strangers uh, in a very public setting where all eyes are on you. So that that I so so that doesn't necessarily help with shyness. Except what I'll do is again, it's using a micro skill in one area and it, to to apply it to another area. I'll take that same performance like skill, like being able to perform and having and having a commanding presence, and then I'll be able to go up, up playing that role. I'll be able to go up to people and, and talk to people. I'm going back and forth now across podcasts. Uh, episode 374, Bishop T.D. Jakes. Oh, he was unbelievable. Yeah. He was unbelievable. So inspirational. Obviously, a lot of differences between us. Like he's a mega church reverend from Dallas. Uh, and But we got along so well. One of the things you've said and you've, you've repeated many times is that, and I'm going to rephrase it or misphrase it, but don't let your past and your mistakes define your future success. Right. Now you can learn from them and and that's a question which is how do you learn from them? How do you analyze them? But then how do you change so that your future and and this applies to entrepreneurship. We'll link it to entrepreneurship, but I'm really interested like how do you take right now and say okay, my past has all these things that blocked me, that prevented me, that made me where I am today. I really want the future to be better. What can I do right now? 
You know, there's a couple of things. First of all, we have to make sure you don't plant good seed in bad soil. So let's do a soil test. What are you actually good at? A lot of times we are interested in things that we're not really good at. <laughs> and, and to be able to evaluate whether I have adequate enough talent to be able to evolve in this particular realm or not is very important. And in order to de develop or determine that, you have to surround yourself at least with some people with whom you can trust to be really honest with you about whether you really have that or not. For an example, I love music. I play the piano, but I do. I, my love for music does not cover the fact that I don't play well enough to have made a career out of it. I may forever be a fan, but I'll never be a maestro. And understanding the difference between loving something that you enjoy listening at versus participating and, and evolving at a level that you may not have the talent for should not depress you because just because I'm not great at that doesn't mean I'm not great at something else. But if someone comes to you and says, well, uh, Bishop Jakes, uh, how do I, f I don't know. I've been sitting in a cubicle for 30 years. How do I find that? And I just got fired. How do I find what my, my interests are that I'm good at? I don't know. What I talk about in the book is I believe that most of life's answers lie within the human heart. And if you will just take a moment and look over your life and see what were the things that you did that when you did them, uh, the gleam came in your eye and energy came into your spirit and you couldn't go to sleep for thinking of creative ways to do them. Wherever those areas of interest lie that, that invigorate you, those are areas of passion. And passion and purpose are interwoven together in such a significant way that if you follow your passions, you will discover your purpose. And I think, you know, it's very interesting you say that because I always look back, what was I, in, what was I passionate about at age 13 or 14 or 20 and how has it aged with me? So like you gave the example of the piano, maybe you can't be a maestro at the piano, but if, if it's an incredible passion for you right now, maybe you could write books about it or maybe right. you could teach about it or, or you know, do commentary about it who, or produce it. Who, yes. who knows? So there's, there's always ways to slice a passion other than being the, the maestro of piano. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and for me, uh, we have a huge music and fine arts department at my church because I love music. I and you produced uh, yeah. music. I produce music. I got Grammys in it. Uh, I surrounded myself with people who who had that same common interest uh, so that we could develop and, and evolve and do that. I think what's important for that person that's stuck in that cubicle is to understand that the cubicle doesn't define you. Just because it paid you doesn't mean that it defines you. And sometimes it betrays the greater gifts that lie inside of you. Let me ask you this. Sometimes I get along with a lot of these guests. Yeah. And I I always I'm always assuming it's we're naturally getting along like, oh, it's yeah, just yeah. my new friend. <laughs> but of course they're going to be charming. They're going to be on my podcast and that's all of them have the skill of charm. Uh but like I really Not I really feel like Not all of them. Yeah, <laughs> I think you know, I definitely I could tell. Like I think we could, could tell. I mean, like I don't if know we if we went to if we went down to Dallas and called up TD Jakes, you think we could just stop by yes, and say hi? Yes, absolutely. That was a great and episode. So we're going to be there it. soon. And I, I also, I think we talked about this, but like Rob Cordry, 
I just oh, felt yeah, like Rob you Corsi, guys are Will like- Ferrell and John and uh, John C. Riley in uh, Step Brothers. It was like, did we just become best friends? It was yeah. unbelievable. Rob Corddry, yeah. episode three eighty three. Let's listen to that clip. But he, we, we were, yeah. we were like best friends in that. One hundred percent. He couldn't like you more. With improv, I imagine you're going into a sketch and you have to fully be there. You mm-hmm. can't think of how the audience is responding to you. Well, yeah, yes and no. I mean, you can't help but think about how the audience is responding because especially in comedy improv, like the laughter is is oxygen. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, you know when you're on the right track and on the wrong track or on the wrong track based on the audience's reaction. But um yeah, the 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 improv was a, an exercise in listening. It was a very good life uh exercise as as a matter of fact, like I think I listen better in life, like I'm a better husband because of improv. That's interesting because it's like, like let's say your wife says something, does your brain suddenly branch it? Okay, I have 12 choices here. <laughs> yeah. One's going to be funny. One's going to piss her off. Yes, you yes, yes. Uh, just yes and. That's uh-huh. what you do. Yes and. Rule number one of improv. Yes, honey, and. Um, and then what's the second rule? Um, what do you mean? I always What's see the, yes and as the first rule. What's the second rule? Oh, the second rule is uh, never kill your scene partner, huh. I think, uh, which you always do. You always kill them because it's funny. <laughs> and um, the third rule is my favorite. This one was taught to me by Matt Walsh um, of the Upright Citizens Brigade. He was my second level, third level teacher. And this, I think, is the secret to their success and also something I've just tried to do in my life outside of acting as well, which is um, your main job is to make, don't worry about yourself, make your scene partner look good. Hmm. And if you do that right, you will look good by default. So it kind of, um, it gets you out of your head in a way. Like you don't have to worry about, it, it, it makes you less self-conscious and more keyed into the person you're, you're improvising with. That's interesting. So, so I could see that working in many areas of mm-hmm. life from yeah. relationships to business to even acting. Mm-hmm. And then um, Seth Godin, episode 375, so smart and intelligent. Uh, I always listen to every piece of advice Seth gives me, I can't, he's like, he's like a wise philosopher in today's day and age. He's unbelievable. And it, it, when, you know, when you think about how smart he is, it makes me think of like in Princess Bride where he, you know, Wallace Shawn says, Socrates, Plato, morons. You know, he's a bright guy. And what yeah. I remember from that podcast was you said to him, I mean, he's written so many books and he's very rehearsed. He's very careful about what he says. Words matter to him and every word he says, it's... It's unbelievable, but I, I'm a huge fan of his. But I, I liked what you said to him. Well, okay, Seth, who are your fans? Who is your fans? Who who are your people? You know, and, and we'd love to have him back for this as marketing. But he said, my fans are dissatisfied. They're thirsty. They're um, and I think that they're the kind of people. I mean, he he phrased in a certain way. He said they're dissatisfied. They're thirsty, and they're generous. You know, and and he explained it, and he talked about how they want to be able to say, "Hey, you should read the Purple Cow. It will really help you about marketing." Or this, yeah, Purple Cow is one of my favorite you. business books. Yeah, and it's not just about business. Actually, it's about how you could live your life. It's about getting out of the comfort zone. Yeah. So thanks again, Seth. We appreciate it. Actually, his books, Purple Cow, Grace. Some of his mo- not yeah. you know 
not more more known books even like the one about grace uh i don't know all his books are yeah worth it's reading. incredibly bright guy. um then he had the book i you can't even buy it it's like 500 pages it's like a huge coffee table book but it's like a collection of his thoughts it's so interesting you've said it over and over try to figure out who your audience is. Exactly. And, we, and we spoke about this before the podcast, audience selection versus audience development. Don't right. try to educate a million people to be your fans. What's the audience you really are aiming for that you could really focus a message to that you know they're going to listen to? And how do you select your audience? Like, What's the audience you're going to? So for? if I was going to say this in six words that people could write down, it's really simple. Choose your customers, choose your future. If you're a freelancer and you have bad clients, you're going to be a bad freelancer. If you're a freelancer, you have great clients, you're going to get better clients. It goes on and on and on. If you're a doctor, it doesn't matter what it is. Choose your customers, choose your future. And who are your customers? My customers are people who are thirsty, dissatisfied, and generous. And what do you mean by generous? Because I, I like that phrase. So I find the whole Ayn Randian Atlas Shrugged thing complete nonsense. It's the, you know, fine for 14 year olds, but we, had plenty of things we did when we were 14 that we don't take seriously. This idea that you need to be selfish is that some sort of way to win and that we should keep track of bank balances as some sort of indication of our worth makes no sense to me. What it means to be generous is to say, I'm going to expend emotional labor, which is not the physical labor of digging a ditch, but the difficult labor of confronting my fear, putting aside my short-term needs to help other people get where they're going, because I believe if we can go to that place, all of us will benefit, right? Zig Ziglar said, you can help, if you help enough other people get what they want, you'll get what you want. I just like the first half of that. If you just help enough other people get what they want, period. That if we lived in a community where that's what was going on, I think it would be a good place because in the connection economy, connection creates value. Who connects to us? We're connected to people we're generous to. We're connected to people we see because people want to be seen. People don't want to be lonely. They don't want to be objectified. They want to be seen. So my ideal reader, listener, whatever, is somebody who looks at this opportunity and says, oh, I got a mic, right? Tell me how to be generous to the people I care about. Because mm. if we can do that, it becomes a virtuous cycle that doesn't tear everything down. It builds everything up. Because I think under the undercurrent of a lot of what you're saying is those 5,000 people say they're not, that might be the audience you're targeting, but there's something else it seems like you're targeting, which is you want to create content that's shareable. So it's easy for you to create content that those 5,000 people will like and they'll consume it because they've been fans of yours for years and they've read all your books and they'll say, oh, here's another Seth Godin thing, I'll buy it. But you want to kind of always find that what am, you, you do push yourself to say what's new so that they can say to their friend who might not have heard of you, hey, you have to read this. This will change your life. Pretty close. I've said I want to be judged not by my work, but by what the people who learned from me taught other people. Hmm. So I don't want people to tell other people about me. I want people to teach other people. And if I don't get credit, it's fine with me. That that second order teaching shows me that I did a good job. Yeah, and it's it's related to all this math like uh, about network effects. Right. So, so for instance, a, a simple example of it is if you want to use LinkedIn to get a job, you don't go to your first level connections, you go to your second level connections, your, your weaker ties. And 
they're the ones that are most likely to help you find a job in part because a there's more of them but I don't know I don't know what the reason for this network effect is but somehow if your weaker ties appreciate what you're doing you know kind of the connections of your connections then that shows you're having an impact it, it's even cooler than that so uh, the people who run LinkedIn told me that more than 70 percent of their revenue comes from things you don't even see not from in mail stuff like that it comes from recruiters paying LinkedIn to help them find people like you the best way to get a job using LinkedIn is to be amazing. Because if you are amazing and you keep doing amazing work, people will come find you. That's what makes it work. So the reason that second order effects are better than first order effects is first order effects are based on the connection we have with people on an emotional level who know us. There is shame associated with not helping us. There is status associated in this interpersonal relationship with helping us. That disappears for second order effects because there's nothing at stake other than, wow, something amazing is happening here, I better tell other people. So that's the part that people miss. It's what they miss about SEO, it's what they miss about LinkedIn, it's what they miss about Amazon, which is the place to do the work is not in the hustle. The place to do the work happens long before the hustle where you are the person they want to find. If you become the person they want to find, you don't have to spend a lot of time getting found. I, I totally agree. I think um, the whole concept of SEO feels very fake to me because if you have nothing to say, there's nothing to SEO. But for you, how do you, and this sounds like a naive question, but it's a question I want to know the answer to and maybe other people, how do you become amazing? I mean, obviously there's sit every day and work at your craft. Like you write your blog post every day. You do this podcast now on a regular basis. But what's, if you could formalize it, how do you become amazing? Right, and that's the essence of the work. And so we've spent a bunch of time talking about some of the surface stuff, but the work is the emotional labor of confronting our fear. Can't make it go away, but you can dance with it. And we live in a culture with more neophiliacs than ever before. More What's a neo? Neophiliac, people who like the new. And so it, it, something's new now for four days, not four months. Used to be a movie would run in the theaters for a year. Now a movie runs in the theater for two weeks. And we say, that's old. What's next? So given that there's so much neophilia, there's a demand for new. That's good. But creating new is really hard. Because what everyone wants to do is buy a dummy's book, see the structure, follow the rules, do the bullet points, and be done knowing it's going to work. But all of the breakthroughs, all of the magic happens when you do something that might not work. And it's the things that might not work that are generous. That's where art lives. That's where innovation lives. That's where the magic happens. So, so let me think of that. The things that might not work, that's where the generous is. Right. Of course, Roy Niederhofer. It was so great to meet him. As a uh, you know, normally I don't have business guys on. Now you could say Ken Langone's yeah. a, a business guy, uh, but you know, Home Depot is something that's affected basically every person in the United States and around the world. But Roy Niederhofer is a hedge fund manager. Has managed managed money for for thirty years, maybe. And both Roy and I have a common ground where we've both worked for his older brother. Uh, Victor Niederhofer. So we had a lot to catch up on and, and talk about, but he gave a lot of great opinions about not only investing, but the economy and 
crypto, you know, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and just, you know, excellence in general. So that's a great one. Here's, here's a clip from that. We'll do the, the Bitcoin clip. When I heard about Bitcoin back in 2011, I remember exactly where I was. It was like I was hit by a bolt of lightning. I was sitting at my kitchen island. And I opened a copy of Wired magazine. There's an article called The Rise and Fall of Bitcoin. It had gone to $20 and back to three at that point. And I read about this thing that was kind of money that had a fixed supply. And I said, wow, this is the solution to the great vice of fiat currencies and even asset-backed currencies like the denarius in Rome. Governments always reduce the value, except if the supply is fixed. And supply here, you're saying, has to be fixed because the software and exactly. software will never for a decade. Exactly. 21 million, that's it. No more Bitcoin. So I bought early and I have been a tremendous proponent of, uh, of Bitcoin since. And I think there's something very special about cryptocurrency. Now, I love blockchain too, and I think that's a revolution in itself. But cryptocurrency has a very specific quality. If you think back to the oysters, what would have happened if you kept your money in oysters? Well, if you remember, Indians used to keep wampum. That was literally oyster shells. So they had some inkling of it having a fixed value. What about if you kept your money in gold from 1900? you basically have the same amount as you had in 1900, right? They, they say for 2,000 years, gold has purchased one, a, a good suit of clothing. And that's basically the case for the last 120 years. But if you'd invested in the stock market in 1900, you'd be richer than Warren Buffett. So how do I reconcile these two things? I'm talking about a fixed supply asset like gold and oysters or like Bitcoin as a good investment, yet you would have done much better to be in dollar fiat currency, even with the 99.95% devaluation, you're still the, one of the richest people in the world. The difference and the reason that Bitcoin is different from any other fixed supply money that's ever been created is that it has associated with it a financial ecosystem as robust and powerful as a fiat currency. So you can buy stocks with Bitcoin. We call those ICOs. You can lend Bitcoin. You can lend at 9 or 11%, and there's a forward rate, just there's a yield curve. You can trade futures. Soon there'll be a full-fledged derivatives market, an options market. Could you argue gold was always like that, though? I'm not sure. so sure. I think for most people, if you have ingots, you, uh, you're kind of stuck with uh, sitting on them with your shotgun or keeping them in a vault. And, of course, transporting them, you know, if you, if you do the math, a suitcase worth of gold is about a million dollars. But if you've got $10, $10 million to transfer, they're not going to let you on a plane. So you're right. kind of stuck. And so Bitcoin has this fungibility aspect where you could send it from place to place for almost nothing these days in almost zero time, you know, a few tens of minutes. Do you ever get worried that you know blockchain as a technology is being used, is starting to be used by almost every bank, Walmart, UPS, even the central bank is, you know, Federal Reserve Bank is looking at uses of blockchain. Do you ever get worried about that the underlying technology could be separated from uh, the use of blockchain as money, which is called Bitcoin? I, I do. I think the digital currency is different from cryptocurrency. I think a US dollar linked cryptocurrency would be an interesting policy tool because it would enable negative interest rates. So if you think about the problem of the government wanting to 
stimulate the economy by having not 0% interest, but negative rates of interest, where if you put your money in the bank, they give you 1% or 2% less every year. Well, people would say, well, why do I put my money in a bank? I'll just keep my cash in my safe, and I'll just sit on it. I'm not going to earn minus 1%. I'd rather earn zero just by having it in my safe. Well, if all your money is in cryptocurrency, they can actually just take it away from you. So having a U.S. dollar or reserve currency that's in a, in a, digital, a digital currency format allows central banks and, and the government to do that. So there may be a reason that they have it. The problem is they're still subject to the same vice of all governments, which is making too many of these negative interest rate secure, dollar, bit dollars or whatever one would call them. So it becomes very dangerous to hold them because they can just make as many as they want. Bitcoin and the other major cryptocurrencies are algorithmically not going to be uh, there, there will be no more extra supply. But the reason often the Federal Reserve devalues or the government in general has been in favor of devaluing is to, like you say, pay for obligations that they made in the past, whether it was Nixon trying to pay for the Vietnam War or you know the, the bailout with Bernanke and, and, and government officials then. So, so how would you manage monetary policy with a central bank linked to cryptocurrency? Well, that's a very interesting question. How would a government behave if it had to behave like any other business? And the answer is they probably would spend a lot less money and make a lot less promises. And it would probably change who people vote for. It would be, a, to me, and again, what interested me in the beginning was, wow, this is really a, a, a different way of thinking about money and government. So I think the world would be a very different place and it might be a better place. Do you think the government, I mean, governments in general, countries in general, have a tendency almost to, to trend negatively. Like the Roman Empire was around forever, but ultimately they trended in the direction of their money. And I think every country throughout history has done that. Do you think there is a way for them to say, oh, let's look at this new type of monetary policy, spend less money, which is different than we've ever done in every year of American history. Do you think that mindset is possible? I think in a democracy it may not be possible because it would be very easy to vote for people that are going to make promises that are easy, more easily understood. Like, don't worry, we're going to make good on, on all this obligation that we told you we would do. And the person saying, no, no, there's not enough money to do that is not going to, it's, no one likes a negative candidate. So I think there's probably a structural reason why we will never have that in the United States or in, in any democracy. It's too painful. So, so uh, what's your, you know, are you guys investing in it? Are you looking at patterns in big crypto the same way you looked in patterns in other systems? So interestingly, we have done a lot of work in, a, in, in many different facets of crypto, ranging from mining and arbitrage and HFT, position trading, ICOs. And then we have our existing models, which have never seen a cryptocurrency. And we found something very interesting, that our existing models work. That the same cognitive biases that people have when they trade soybeans and Google and U.S. Treasury bonds are present in the way people trade crypto. Hmm. And where, where, just as a final thing, where, what, should pe- what books could people read to learn more about these cognitive biases that, that you've been modeling? So I, I have two books that I, I love to recommend and give to people. Um, one is Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And in it, he really goes, I think it's the greatest book on trading. 
doesn't have much to do with trading until you start thinking about it, about it as a metaphor for trading. And then every single page has something to do with trading and living more effectively as well. So I'd recommend that. And uh, another book that I love, which interestingly was written by another Harvard neuroscientist. He, he preceded me in the lab I was in, which was run by a guy named Steve Coslin. Uh, the, the most famous grad student when I was there in the 80s was this guy named Steven Pinker. And Enlightenment sure. now is exactly. most recent. Exactly. So even back then, Pinker was a superstar, and uh, he's one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. And his book, uh, The Blank Slate, also has some very interesting ideas that I think are uh, worth thinking about and counter consensus. Okay, I'll say, first of all, again, all 100 are great. We've talked about so many episodes. Yuval Harari, we, we always say so-and-so is the smartest person ever. <laughs> Yuval Harari actually is the smartest person on the planet. Wow. That, that, it's really, he's, again, I, like I would say with somebody like Michio Kaku, I think if you're really, really smart, you could make it seem very simple. You know, and that was what I found so impressive about all all three of his books, you know, you had him on for Sapiens, and then this one is 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. And, of course, he wrote Homo Deus, but just incredibly bright and, you know, just conversational. Such a nice guy. And, and also because he's been on before. We, yeah. we started off as, like, knowing each other and yeah, friendly. Yeah, he appreciated the first interview you did. So, and, and, you know, um, obviously in, in Sapiens, all through, uh, all, all through all three of his books, he talks about the whole history of, the human species in this very unique way. Uh, and so my first, the first, you know, so by the way, just the facts in those books that he describes yeah. and, the, and the way he talks about them, it's interesting to listen to the podcast and read the books and so on. But I was also interested, how do you come up with this stuff? Like, how do you think about things? And so him describing his thought process about how he comes to certain conclusions was very interesting. And then, of course, his 21 lessons that we need to think about now for the 21st century. That's fascinating. We talked about quite a few of those 21 lessons. But before we get into the clip, the main, not the main takeaway, but one of the takeaways, which I've been doing, we start off the podcast and he's telling me he doesn't have a cell phone, a smartphone. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it. Like, how do you call people when you're outside if you don't have a smartphone? Yeah. And he says he doesn't. And I'm like, well, how do you meet people? Uh, like if you're arranging to meet, well, we arrange to meet beforehand and then we just meet. Yeah. And, and so we just did that podcast, he, uh, yeah. nine days ago. Uh, this is now, um, day eight. Uh, I've been doing what he was doing. I have not taken the phone out of my house since that podcast. And it really does make a huge difference in my life. Like I haven't. I can't say I haven't missed it because I've had like, it's like when you stop eating carbs, like suddenly you want to eat carbs yeah. like incredibly. I like there's this incredible craving and that's related to the dopamine hit you get from, you know, just touching the phone and getting an Instagram like and so on. But I think uh, it's, it's, you know, it's given me more time to think, more time to read. You know, when you look at the actual amount of time you spend on your phone, you can't notice it until you no longer have it. And it's incredible. So I'm on day eight. We'll see how long I can go. But I'm I'm doing Yuval's strategy. How long do you think you could go? 
I'm gonna try to go forever. Wow. I'm on day eight and I haven't you and know, he, maybe and he and you asked him about that because he's very big. He spends a lot of time meditating every day. He does like a thirty day retreat every year. Sixty day, he said. Sixty day, wow, wow. So he spends two hours a day meditating. And then yeah. he also spends he said several hours a day reading and then several hours a day writing. Yeah. So you can't and then he has a you know, he's married, he spends time, you know, on his relationships. You can't do that if you're a professor. You know, the average amount of time people spend on the phone is, it's hard to believe, but is basically four hours and 40 minutes a day is the average American spends on the phone, on on their smartphone. And how are you going to do that if you're going to meditate and read and write and actually accomplish your life goals uh, if you're on the phone for four hours and 40 minutes a day? You know, that that adds up to something like five years in your lifetime. Um, And that's without sleep. So it's really more like, you know, uh, 15 years of 15 work years of your lifetime. That's your whole life is on the smartphone. And this is your point in the book that that free will itself is kind of a myth. I mean, we, we already know that a lot of cognitive biases that we have no control over shape our decisions, but we still mm-hmm. think we have largely more control over them than they, than they have over us. But your point is that with data, we'll be able to analyze, well, what music triggers what parts of the brain, mm-hmm. what images trigger what, you know, the sales or greed parts of the brain and, and so on. So that the first level is kind of data used for advertising, but the second level might be data used for much more insidious decision-making. Yes. Um, if you get to know a person well enough, if you get to know a person better than that person knows himself or herself, and that's even on the inside, how the brain works yeah. and everything. And, you know, people know so very little about themselves, both on the biological level, certainly, how many people really understand their brains. Uh, but even on the psychological level, on the mental level, um, we have an entire profession of therapists who are just trying to help us get in touch with ourselves because it's so difficult. And if you go and, and practice something like meditation, then at least when, when I started practicing meditation, I was struck by how little I know. I know almost nothing about my mind. And, you know, we have this myth of free will, which in a way serves as a curtain uh, that hides the reality about ourselves, that actually um, dampens our curiosity. Because if you really believe in the myth of free, of free will, my desires reflect my freedom, I chose these desires, I chose everything I, that, that I do, then you know everything. You understand yourself, you understand your desires, you know where they are coming from, there is nothing to investigate. But once you realize, no, um, my desires don't reflect my free will, they reflect all kinds of processes on the biological level, on the psychological level, which I don't understand, then you start being very curious about yourself. And I think that, you know, in the 20th century, in, in, in throughout history, this advice to people, get to know yourself better, this was always very good advice, that you don't really know necessarily why you want this or why you want that. But for all of history, though you had all these Socrates and Buddha and Freud telling people, know yourself, if you said, nah, I, don't, I, I can't be bothered about it, you didn't have competition. Still, you were a black box to the rest of humanity. So it wasn't such a disadvantage not to know yourself. 
But now in the 21st century, what you need to realize, you have real competition this time. It's not like in the days of Socrates. If you don't get to know yourself better, there is somebody out there who is right now trying to hack you. And not just one. Amazon is trying to hack you, and Google is trying to hack you, and Coca-Cola is trying to hack you, and the Russians, and the American government, and the Chinese, they are all trying to hack you right now. Right, and so, and there's different, again, there's different layers. So, for instance, Amazon's trying to hack you in the sense of, okay, you've all bought this, 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 and this, and mm -hmm. our AI and our data about people similar to Yuval show that he will probably buy this next. Yes. And so that's what they'll start to show you. And then maybe five years from now, <laughs> they'll send it to you yesterday what you were going to buy tomorrow. Yes. Um, what's, what's the next insidious level of that? So that's kind of almost a good thing. Mm -hmm. When does it start to get darker? Well, it's uh, first they sell you a product. And it really started with selling products, all these, all these methods. But now these methods are also being used to sell you politicians, which is a bit more insidious than right. selling people products. Uh, the next step is um, to start manipulating your desires instead of just fulfilling them. Yes, he wants this, but we can actually make him want that instead. And then it really becomes kind of the twilight zone. That if you realize that actually my desires, they do not reflect my free will, they reflect a more and more sophisticated system of manipulation, then what can I trust if I cannot trust my own inner, most authentic uh, desires and wishes? And again, this was a problem throughout history. Throughout history, if you really looked hard, you would have realized that many of your desires, they come either from biological bugs or from cultural manipulations and propaganda and so forth. But still, you were in a privileged position. Nobody out there could really understand you better than you understand yourself. So you're saying so, like things like nationalism or to an extreme fascism or mm -hmm. on the other side, liberalism or before that religion were different man-made stories to potentially... Um, take control of your free will in a way yes. that the kings or whoever could control. But now it's with digitalism, for lack mm -hmm. of a better word, it could get deeper. They actually can yes. get inside of you in ways that you can't say no to. Exactly, because simply because they understand the biology better, they understand the brain better, they have better devices to monitor what's happening there and they are going to have better devices to change what is going on there. So what you tried to do a thousand years ago with the priest preaching from the pulpit, you will be able to do in a far more invasive way in 10 or 50 years with all kinds of brain-computer interfaces uh, and uh, uh, direct biological interventions. So it's not new... What, what do you mean by direct biological intervention? As you understand the biological system better, you can, uh, you know, like with every system, once you understand how the system works, you can start changing it in more and more ways. So, you know, we talked about William Shatner, 
talked about Tucker. And again, all 100 have been great. Like, I feel like each podcast, we, again, I don't do the podcast to be a journalist. I'm not trying to report on events. I'm not trying to uh, get my opinion over on them. I'm trying to make, let <clears throat> I me mean, drink, drink water. But I'll tell you, I'll interrupt in that I spent 20 something years in TV and radio and journalism. And I, I don't think, you know, when you make that disclaimer, I still think people get, you're just naturally curious and you're there to, you don't come in with an agenda perhaps, but you come in with a curiosity that brings the best out of these people. Well, you know? I, yeah. I think I do have a little agenda, which is a selfish agenda. I just want to make my life better. <laughs> like this podcast is a great way to call up people who I am inspired by and I get to ask them as many questions as I want to make my life better. <laughs> and then in doing, and I'm also thinking of the uh, listeners, what's going to make their lives better. So yeah. there, I want, I'm always thinking someone's driving into work or they're at their gym and they're listening to this. I want them to think, huh, that one thing this person just said just made my life better. I want to share it with my cousin or wife or husband or whatever because it'll make their lives better yeah. too. And so I'm always thinking about that. And again, everybody's been great. I've, I've skipped over a good 70 podcasts here. They were all amazing from astronaut Mike Messimino, Frank Oz, who plays Yoda, to Brad Meltzer, the thriller novelist, to John Ronson. Gosh, so many people. PJ O'Rourke. Uh, I, I could just go on and on. They're all, um, I, I've learned something. We actually don't air a podcast unless I learn something from it. So everybody's been amazing. But Thanks to all the listeners for hanging in there. Another hundred episodes. Uh, hopefully, uh, we'll be around for the next hundred. The five hundred episodes, we'll have a big party. So save the date when you <laughs> when you realize we're getting close to five hundred. And uh, Steve, how's your? I can't believe it's been a whole yeah, year. Yeah, it's been actually. amazing. It's been really, really terrific. Years a long time to work someplace. Thousand percent. No, I, I, and I tell people this, and one of the things I like about our podcast, like it's authentic and i feel like everything we said when we met you know has been coming true and it's been terrific i think like chase the right relationship is everything and you want to be around really smart people who want you to do well not just people who don't want you to screw up but i think for the listeners out there like you want to be in an environment where people have a mission where they really really want to do well like they want to learn and they're sincere about it and if they are they're gonna be good to work with, you know. Like if and so, uh, so far so good. What would you say are highlights from the next hundred episodes? What oh. would you What would you like when oh, we do I, the five hundredth episode? Yeah, what are oh, we gonna look back and I say? I think that's terrific. Yeah, we have to be like um, vision ahead and say, okay, like how are we gonna get to space and do these things? Um, I think um, I'm definitely. One of the most successful people in Hollywood was Mike Ovitz, and he's coming up, and he's writing a book called Who is Mike Ovitz? And I think he's a really fascinating figure. Uh, we expect to have Reed Hoffman on, who you know, started LinkedIn and PayPal, and we love his podcast, which is terrific. So very, very excited about that. We're going to have Neil deGrasse Tyson, who is in the mold of Amicio and... You know, like you said, Carl Sagan. So I'm definitely very excited yeah, about that. Let's say the ones we don't know and without oh yeah, yeah, any, who would without like any, any yeah. names, but like just yeah. in general, where would you like to see the 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 type of guests and the category um, of guests? Like, where would you like to to aim? Um, I think I 
I, what I really enjoy is like, you know, about doing this is, yeah, I think we all have to be curious and do you want to learn something? I mean, in news, people used to say if, you know, news is when somebody's trying to hide something. Everything else is just advertising. So in our case, mm. you know, we want to we want to have stuff that's different and unique and interesting and that, yeah, only people could listen to you would hear it. And you, you know, we've talked about the skill stack before. And again, I'm not, I'm relatively smart. My relatives think I'm smart. You know, like I've seen a lot of interviewers and you have a unique skill stack. You know chess, you've been in business, you've written books, you've failed and failed and failed. But, um, and so I don't think very many people can do the interviews you could do and the range and the depth and bring that kind of intensity. So I'm um, like anywhere I would want to work, I want to be a privilege and a responsibility. No, it's not a reward. And we take it seriously. So, and we have I, fun. I, you know? I'll, I'll add a little. I think, yeah. I think we should do more podcasts without guests. Yeah. Like we did the podcast about the Beatles and their rooftop. Yeah. You don't have to know anything about the Beatles. Because we kind of described, yeah. we did it about their last rooftop concert, their last yeah. concert, the last time they appeared together at all, and it was their rooftop concert in London. I thought that was a great it podcast, a, and yeah. I got great feedback on that. And I, yeah, and I remember that day because one of our guests wasn't there, and I remember saying to you, James, it's like they say, there's a live time and dead time. Dead time is if we say, oh, blah, 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 it didn't come, he's the worst, you know, screw it, you know, and we... And we complained about it, but a live time is like, okay, here's where we are. Let's make the most of it. And we did make lemonade out of those lemons, and it was terrific. And yeah, it, and I think was, I think if there's any topics that listeners want me or Steve and me to talk about, uh, tweet them. Tweet tweet them to me at Jay Altucher, and um, we'll 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 talk about them. I think there's a lot of interesting topics that have a general audience, and. Um, and there's a lot of topics that I kind of want to talk about, so I think I think we'll probably have more of a blend of that in the next um, uh, yeah, I can't wait hundred episodes. And I think you know, I it will probably tie more things into my Instagram account, which is at Altucher. And in any case, uh, thank you. I just want to say thanks to everybody for listening and all the great feedback we've got we're getting, or even. Not so great feedback. We really appreciate it. And I, uh, like I said, it's a privilege and responsibility. We're having a lot of fun. And um, please feel free to reach out to us at any time or come to one of the podcasts. Yeah, you go. A lot of times we we tweet out you could, you could come because we could do it at the on the stage at uh, the comedy club um, in owner of. And um, uh, if you don't subscribe, please subscribe because it helps us know that we should keep doing this. So please subscribe to the podcast. Thanks a lot. Thank you.